The next question comes from Trinity. And I know this has been answered before. Does the LCS still use non-player characters in our reality frame? But there's an add-on from Eric V that asks, uh, I'd also be curious to know whether it's possible to recognize if someone is a non-player character or not. If you think that's an interesting question, um, please um, please elaborate okay. on that. Okay. Well, let me. I, I just thought of something while you were reading that about the last question on dental hygiene, and that is, if you don't take care of your hygiene in your mouth, you will find that it puts other organs at risk. A lot of the bacteria that you grow in your mouth when it becomes unhealthy actually uh, gets swallowed, goes through your system, and that same kind of bacteria can affect other organs. So in that sense, good hygiene is very important because without it, you know, you can damage more than just your teeth. So it is an, it's an important thing. And you don't do good hygiene by covering things up. You know, you have bad breath, so you cover it up. So now it doesn't offend people, but you've not eliminated the source. Bad breath has sources, and the sources generally are unhealthy. You just wake up every morning and your breath is really bad. That means that you don't have good oral hygiene or you're eating stuff that's rotting in your stomach or other sorts of things that are unhealthy. Ordinarily, if you eat well, you won't have things like bad breath. It's just if you are not really healthy, that's and you're and you're in you know you're suboptimal in the way you eat and the way you digest and the way you're living your life, then you have things like that that uh, plague you. All right, on to this other question about non-player characters. Non-player characters are characters that the larger conscious system is playing, or in a game, it's characters that the computer is playing. And no, there is no way for you to tell them apart because whether an IUOC is playing a character or the computer is playing the character, you can't tell. There's nothing that stands out that uh, would be any different. I mean, after all, you're a piece of, you're a piece of the larger cancer system and you're playing an avatar. And if some other piece of the larger kind of system is playing an avatar. And if the system itself is playing an avatar, you see there's very little difference there. They're all chips off the same thing. You're all going to play that avatar, um, you know, as a reflection of yourself. So you won't know the difference. Are there any still wandering around? Well, not as many as there used to be in the beginning uh, or in the beginning when this, when the simulation first kind of came online, if you will, all the characters were played by the larger conscious system. All the characters are NPCs. And then IUOCs, individuated units of consciousness, started to log on. Okay, then as there was more and more IUOCs wanting to log on, fewer and fewer were NPCs. Well, you keep that process going as the population keeps expanding, as there's more and more seats, you'll see that by now pretty much all of the characters are IUOCs, individuated units of consciousness playing the avatars. The computer doesn't need to play avatars. He's got plenty of IUOCs to do that. Okay. Because if it plays all the avatars, then it's really back to the place where it was before. It's one monolithic thing doing everything. You see, it doesn't want to be there. It broke itself into pieces for a reason that created interaction 
that was uncontrollable, therefore had a lot of potentiality. So there is a disincentive for the system to play very many NPCs. It wants as many NPCs as it can to be played by individuated units of consciousness. Sometimes the largest conscious system would like to come down and just reach out and, you know, touch something, you know, nudge something, have an effect here. And it doesn't like to do magic, particularly when that's visible, but it can send a, a, a you know, a, a NPC here just for a cameo role, cameo role, just to do something, impart a message, pull Timmy out of the well, you know, throw a ladder down to somebody, uh, just do something that uh, is going to help the system entropy lower and do it in a way that nobody notices. So it doesn't look like any magic or anything odd happened at all. So it does that sometimes using NPCs as cameo roles, where that would mean that an individual just appears here, does its job, pulls Timmy out of the well, you know, pets Lassie on the head and then walks away. And, you know, after he goes around the bend, nobody knows who that guy was. So that sort of thing still happens in the margins, but not necessarily a lot. All right, Tom, thank you. The next question is from Shay. Can you discuss what your experiences are of parallel processing? Well, yes, a little bit. Um, you know, you, you first learn to parallel process when you learn to meditate while you're, say, walking in a park or walking in the woods where you get a really good meditation going, but you keep enough of your awareness here in the physical to make sure you don't run into somebody, step in a hole or, you know, walk across a street, you know, while traffic is, is going by. So you need enough focus here to walk around in the park um, competently and endangering your, not endangering yourself or others. But at the same time, you're in a really good meditation state. Maybe you're healing someone. Maybe you're getting data or maybe you're just floating in the void but you learn to do both. So how to do that initially, learn to meditate in different forms, different ways, okay, different forms too. You know, you can do a breath or you can do a mantra or do one to the other. Learn to meditate standing up or sitting down or sitting on a chair with a very straight back or, you know, um, Stand up half the time, you know, lie down the other half. Uh, meditate standing on one foot. That'll be a little more challenging than just standing up. And eventually you'll learn to do that to where you have a really good meditation. But okay, you're standing on one foot in the corner, but you can still have a good meditation. So then learn to do it while you're walking in the park. Then try, then escalate that to where you're sitting on a bench in a mall, you know, at Christmas time and there's thousands of people in this mall and they're all running around like they're insane and lots of noise and hubbub and children screaming and et cetera, et cetera. And you can just sit there on that bench and meditate. You see, now you have a very robust meditation. 
plus you're aware at the same time that there are children screaming and that things are going on and you can hear the Christmas music coming from the speakers in the mall. So you're physically aware of your surroundings, but that doesn't stop you from being someplace else in a meditation state. All right, that's how you start. Then the next thing you can do is parallel process healing while the person who's asking you to do the healing is describing what the situation is. Oh, my Aunt Sadie, you know, just fell down the stairs and she needs a lot of help. Could you help her? And you start looking up Aunt Sadie, you start the healing process. And while you're asking questions, well, you know, how old is your Aunt Sadie? And, uh, you know, what did she, you know, you know, what hurts the most? And, uh, you know, what kind of person is she? So you're just having a nice conversation with this person about Aunt Sadie, but all the time you're healing. You're, you're diagnosing, you're getting data, you're sending your healing energy. So that then is the next easiest thing to do. After that, you can learn to be in realities, not just while you're healing, but you can be here and be in and out of body space at the same time. You can be here getting data at the same time. It's not that hard to do. Uh, an example, if you have picture in a picture on your digital TV set, well, put on two pictures, two different, you know, all the guys do this, right? They'll put on three different football games, you know, that all happen on the same Saturday and they'll have all three games on and they're in their big screen TV all running at the same time. And they can, with a little practice, watch all three and not miss anything. Well, then you can put up a fourth game. And a fifth game, eventually you'll run out of, you'll run out of, um, okay, you say you'll run out of resolution because it's a zero sum game. In other words, what you're doing is really fast sampling. You're taking a fast sample here and then there and then there and then there. And if you fast sample, if you, or if you sample fast enough, it looks like they're all running in parallel and it's all continuous. <clears throat> but if you have four games up, then you're not spending but 25% of the time on any one game. Well, for something as slow as football, 25% of the time is like more than you need, you know, to follow the game. You may miss a play here and there, but probably not because the, you know, the, the chatter changes, the tenor of the voice changes when that guy's going out for that long pass and everybody's waiting to see if he'll catch the ball. You'll hear that and your ears will immediately tell you something's going on and your eyes will dart up to that screen. So <coughs> you'll probably not miss anything at all. When you first start out, you look at one, look the other, look at the next, look at the next. It's like you spend time looking at each one, but eventually your brain does that for you. It just collects the data from all four games and your mind processes the whole thing and gives you the readout of the whole thing. So it's like anything else. You have to learn to, to, um, what do you call it? Uh, get in the, get in the groove, get in the, get in the, uh, flow, get in the zone. That's what I'm looking for. You know, where, where when you're in the zone, you can do all kinds of things that you can't do with your intellect. Getting in the zone is getting out of your intellect and just opening yourself up to the data. Nobody can type fast if they have to look and see where all the letters are on the keys, you have to 
get in the zone where that doesn't matter, where your eyes read and your fingers type, and it all just works. It works very fast because your intellect is no longer slowing it down. Well, this works the same way. You can look at four or five screens at the same time, get rid of Eventually, you let the intellect go. You're not really looking at any of them. You're individually, you're looking at all of them, and you just get all the data and let your mind sort it out on its own. And then you can maybe add a fifth or a sixth if you get to the where you can get in the zone. But there are limits to how many. So that's what it is to parallel process. Not that hard a thing to do, but it does take practice. You will find that parallel processing is difficult when you first try it. It'll get easier the more you do it. Eventually, you won't even notice. You won't even be really aware that you're doing it. It's just second nature to do more than one thing at a time. And I should say that the ladies here have an advantage over the men. Women tend to parallel process more naturally than men do. Men have to work at it a little more. Ladies learn to parallel process because in general they have a kind of, they have instincts that make them very fit for the job of raising children. When you raise children and run a household, you're doing at least two or three things at the same time. You can't help that. There's just that much going on. So they have an innate sense of parallel processing that makes two or three or four or five things all at once work for them. And if you doubt that, you know, walk into any office where there's a secretary and you'll see that secretary will have a phone in her ear and she'll be talking. She'll have a pad in her hand. She'll be writing. And you walk up to the desk and she will, she will pause, talk to you, keep the conversation going, you know, keep the handwriting. And you will see that uh, most any secretary can do at least three or four things at once because her job demands it. And eventually she gets used to it. Well, guys can do it too. They just have to practice a little more. They weren't necessarily uh, have that in their instincts to do that, but they can parallel process. Now, what the guys have that the ladies don't have is focus because in their job, it's very important to very intently focus on one thing and shut everything else out. And of course, the ladies have a little harder time with that for the most part, but ladies can learn to do that as well. So. Um, that's just the difference that we bring out of our out of our instincts. But everybody can parallel process with a little practice. Thanks, Tom. The next question comes from this came from an email to us um, back before July's fireside chat, and uh, we don't think it's been asked on the fireside chat. It comes from Bob. What is intelligence and talent? Where does it come from? Do intelligent and very talented people necessarily have a highly evolved consciousness? Some are very um, unscrupulous and arrogant and evil. And the second part of his question is, is, it, is there a way to become more intelligent and uh, kind of reprogram our brain by intent? Sure. Um, intelligence, I think... Um, Present psychological theory will tell you that's something you're, it comes, that you're born with. It's innate and that, uh, you won't change it by very much because that's just the way you are. And we're all born with a certain level of intelligence that happens to come from the way the biology comes together. 
uh, and the and the genetics in that biology, but that is not entirely true. Um, things like IQ tests don't really measure intelligence; they measure other things. They rem- they measure social things. Like if a person in this society were were very intelligent, he would be aware of these things. So we'll ask him questions about these things, and if he's aware of them, we'll rate him as high intelligence. But that's not really measuring intelligence directly. It's measuring intelligence indirectly based on what people think intelligent people would understand. So intelligence is a little difficult to measure. If you uh, want to join the... uh, What's the name of it? Uh, there's a society that uh, gives you an IQ test that you have to uh, you have to pass, and they put them out on the internet. Here, take this IQ test, and if you get a high enough score, oh, Mensa is what it's called. They offer you to you know they ask you to come join their group. Okay, well they seem to have the idea that abstract, very abstract thinking and uh, geometric thinking, you know, is a good indicator of of uh, IQ. Most of their tests are based on those two things. Um, you know, lawyers base their LSAT test basically on logic. If you sell, if you can solve logic problems and logic problems are an indicator of a high IQ, but none of them are particularly accurate in the way they measure. So what is it? Sometimes people come with skill sets. Sometimes there's a, there's a five-year-old that plays a piano, you know, like an adult. They just pick it up. They're interested. You know, they're interested at two. They start playing at two and a half. And by five, you know, they're, they're giving, uh, gee whiz and wow concerts, you know, uh, to large groups of people because they're that good. So how does that work? Well, it probably is a skill that, that they come in with just the way they are. Now, maybe you could say they did that in a past life and they loved it so much and were so dedicated to it. And it was so much a part of their life that they just bring that, pro- that, uh, propensity. They bring that proclivity to this life as well because it was so, they were so focused on that. That was so important to them. That's a good explanation, but also the larger conscious system just likes to keep us awake so that we don't think that this is a an all uh, material reality and that there aren't amazing and wonderful things that just happen sometimes so that could be another reason that somebody has a you know as a prodigy at doing something at a very young age and goes on to be a prodigy sometimes those prodigies that are really really good at five years old turn out that that's not what they do at all you know they give up music and flip hamburgers or something. They don't uh, continue with it, but that's not the general case. Often it's a passion that they do continue with it. So skill has a lot to do with expectations. If people expect you to be talented and skillful, and if you're always fed positive things, oh, you can do it. You can do anything. Yes, that's very good. You see, if you give if you can feed people positive attitudes, that will help them become more proficient at all sorts of things. I read a story once uh, about a basketball player who attributed his 
superiority at basketball to his father, who, when he was young, set the basket down low enough that he could actually be successful. You know, most five or six or seven-year-olds aren't strong enough to throw a basketball high enough to actually get it in the basket. And they have a terrible time. And after 10 or 20 attempts, they give up. They don't have an interest in it anymore. Well, this dad put it down at a level where his five-year-old could put make baskets. And then as he grew up, he kept moving that basket a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. Eventually, it was up at the regular level with everybody else. But this son grew with confidence that he was good at this. You see, if you have that confidence, that makes up for a lot. So encouragement and positive feedback make up for a tremendous amount of the unusual skills and competencies that we have. And just the opposite of that, you know, if you had a dad that always put the basket just a foot higher than what, you know, the child could do, well, you definitely would end up creating a child that didn't like basketball because there'd be nothing but failure. So places where parents are negative, where school teachers are negative, you know, where band band leaders are negative uh, to the children in their, you know, junior high school band and this sort of thing. You can discourage talent just as easily as you can encourage it. And people who might have been excellent end up not even participating because they got negative feedback about their participation. So that is probably the biggest role is confidence. When a child thinks, I'm good at this, then they will work hard to be good at it. And other people come in and challenge them and, and whatever, they're going to show them that they're even better. You know, they're, they're good. They're, they're very good. And they keep that edge by working hard, but it's not work for them. It's a pleasure because it gives them something to be outstanding about. It gives them something to kind of, you know, uh, excel at. But most of us don't get that kind of encouragement. Most of us just kind of go, you know, get along and go along. So if we really want to play the piano, then when we're adults, we go buy a piano and go take lessons. But we'll probably never be on the concert, uh, you know, tour. But we will play it well enough that it will give us great pleasure. And that's probably good enough. So where does all that come from? It comes from lots of places. You can inherit it. You can get it from a past life. It can just be given to you so that uh, so that other people can find you to be a gee whiz factor and uh, that reality is strange and everything is inexplainable. Just help people generally keep an open mind. So it could come to you from many ways. But the biggest thing, I think, the most, the thing that, that affects the most people is just developing confidence in children when they're small that they are competent and that they can do and that they are worthy and that they, you know, should follow their passion, whatever that is. So those kinds of things probably affect more people than anything else. And, you know, any of you who really wanted to be good at something could be good at it if you spent the time. Anybody listening to this, if what you want to do is be a brain surgeon or play the piano in a concert, you can probably do that if you want to spend the time. But it may take years 
And you may have to work at it, you know, four or five hours a day, every day for the next decade or two decades to get there. Well, if you don't really want to play a piano in a concert, then you're probably not going to dedicate that much time and effort to it. But you could. See, the same has to do with growing up. If you really want to grow up and you put a lot of effort into it, you'll grow up pretty quickly. But if you really don't want to put that much effort into it, it'll take you a long time. Thank you, Tom. That was good. Um, I think talent can be a part of uh, talent or genius or the uh, abilities can be somewhat inherited. Like you said, you spoke about different examples, but it's the, the consciousness, the, the being that is encouraged is a, is a very powerful thing, like you said. The next question comes from uh, Trinity, and it is about electronic voice phenomenon. What are your thoughts on the electronic voice recordings? Many think that these are actual recordings from deceased loved ones. Is this true? Now, I'm not familiar with exactly what he means about the electronic voice recordings. Yeah, I am. They will they will put a okay. let's say tune a radio between stations where they're static, and they will record what what that is. And of course, most of the time it just sounds like shh, like static. But sometimes they'll actually get voices, and sometimes they'll be reasonably clear. Sometimes they'll sound a little distorted, but they'll hear voices in static where no voices should be. And there's Two things going on there. One, static is very random. It's full of uncertainty. And where you have a system that's very random, your intent can modify that system to produce something that's very unlikely. Okay, so the fact that you start with a random system means that your intent, I really want to hear a voice in this. I want my, you know, my dead grandfather to, you know, to say hello. And uh, you might hear a, uh, something like that. Well, that's your hello, you see. You probably won't hear a hello. How are you today? That generally doesn't happen. It's more like the uh, that you get that is kind of what you're looking for. But people would listen to it and they'd say, well, I'm not sure whether that's really a hello or not. You see, that's what typically shows up as things that aren't perfectly clear. Occasionally, perfectly clear sentences show up. All right. Now, when the perfectly clear sentences show up, it's probably not just your intent that's modifying all that randomness into a croaky hello, but it's probably the larger consciousness system that's trying to give you a, a demonstration that will help you see a bigger picture, that will help you have personal experience that this reality is a lot larger than the physical. In that case, you may hear a perfectly clear voice come over that, you know, come over alpha that radio that has tuned to static, and it may say something completely amazing. That can happen. It's just a data stream. You sitting there recording radio static is just a data stream. You're a consciousness. You get data. 
your avatar now is turned on a radio and a recorder and turned the radio between stations and you're recording. That's what's going on. If the system wants to send you, you know, the first, you know, the opening paragraph of, uh, you know, you know, of a, of an opera or something else or something that's profound or quote Shakespeare or whatever else, the system can put that into your data stream without any trouble at all. And when it's in your data stream, that is your reality. You will hear it. It will be recorded. Nobody else will believe you, but that doesn't matter. You heard it. You know how it was made. It's made the, you know, it's had the effect on you. And that's what it's all about. So the clear things, I think, will be the things that the larger conscious system gives you as a wake-up call, as as evidence of uh, the bigger reality, because that will open your mind, open other people's minds. And the ones that they kind of croaky and aren't real clear, that's probably when you use your intent to modify a future probability and you get something out that, that uh, you know, is what you were looking for. So those are the two two different ways by which that can happen. The system does a lot of things to help people wake up. When you make a survey of people and say, have you ever experienced anything paranormal? You'll get 70 to 80% of the people will say yes. And that's because they've heard somebody talk in static. That's because, you know, their dead mother called them on the telephone once. It's because things happen. It's because of all the synchronicity that's in their life, like we heard about earlier this morning, and those kinds of things happen. The system is constantly giving people who are ready to grow these kinds of experiences to help them see a bigger picture, turn them into seekers. They want to find out more. So the system will do all kinds of interesting things to let people realize that this is a bigger reality and there is a bigger picture than just the physical. So that's where the clear things will come from. The system is giving you information. Now, is it dead people? Well, if that's what you're asking for, I want to hear my, you know, dead Uncle Fred tell me something. Then you'll probably get dead Uncle Fred if it's the larger consciousness talking to you. And dead Uncle Fred will probably say something, though his speech is no doubt going to be short. It will contain something to let you know that it really is Uncle Fred because he'll tell you something only Uncle Fred knows, you see. We'll call you by a nickname that you had when you were very small, but nobody's ever heard that nickname since you've been an adult, but it comes out in this recording. So the system likes to do that because it just makes people doubly interested because there's proof we really are talking the dead Uncle Fred. Well, something, you know, is giving you that information and the something is something that knows Uncle Fred or has data on Uncle Fred. So lots of these things happen to people and that's just one of them. There's probably dozens of ways that the system gives us this, but when it's static, when it's got a lot of uncertainty, then that's a good medium for doing weird things because where there's lots of uncertainty, it's more easy 
for the system and for you to modify what's in the data stream. So, Tom, you would say that these are not actual recordings, as the question was raised, but more information from the LCS. What do you mean well, actual recordings? Well, Sometimes they're, they're the people being... record it. They, they plug their little recorder into the radio or into the um, device, and they hear it. Yeah. Or, you know, they're recorded in that way so they can go play it back. Listen, you know, here's my dead Uncle right. Fred saying, saying hello, you know, and uh, so they do record it. What I meant was, I'm sorry, uh, actual recordings from deceased loved ones. So people are thinking it's literally the recording from the deceased loved one when you might say it's information that the larger consciousness system gives them. Yeah, for the most part, that is the case. For the most part, that's the case. And, uh, you know, dead Uncle Fred, particularly if dead Uncle Fred's been dead for quite some time, he's off. Uncle Fred no longer exists. Uncle Fred is gone. That was just an avatar that was played. Okay. That doesn't persist. The database defining Uncle Fred and every thought and every feeling Uncle Fred ever had and every piece of information he ever got, that's still there. Okay. So the system can tap into that database and pull out of it what it needs. So that it does sound like Uncle Fred and it has that special nickname for you to uh, create credibility. Okay. Now, we said data can come from three sources. Data can come from another IUOC. If you had a bunch of IUOCs in a meditation state trying real hard to make that static radio say, hello, you might be able to do it. You see, because it's uncertain static and you may be able to create it just out of your own mind change the probability modify the modify the probability that you'd get a hello out of it so in which case a bunch of people consider i say a bunch because more people together are more powerful a single person could also do it if they were powerful enough could actually have that effect okay now it's unlikely that it's it's the, you know, we, we get in this discussion, you know, exactly who is Uncle Fred? You know, well, Uncle Fred was that avatar that lived and died. That is Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred doesn't exist anymore. Uncle Fred's dead. So it exists, yes. Now, if Uncle Fred just died yesterday and Uncle Fred's still in the transition, and uh, Uncle Fred uh, was really upset that he didn't say goodbye to his favorite nephew, then maybe Uncle Fred would actually send a message to somebody, or maybe not. It's unlikely, because it's more likely that 10 minutes after Uncle Fred dead was dead, or after Uncle Fred died, Uncle Fred probably forgot all about his nephew and everything else that was in that life. Okay, Because that's just the way the system works. You lose your memory of the past life like a dream. So it's unlikely that it was a, that it was the Uncle Fred. Once Uncle Fred's done, he's done. Yes, people have that idea. Possible. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, possible, a possibility. it's a possibility, but it is very unlikely that it mm -hmm. really is. See, what is the difference between the real Uncle Fred 
and the system playing Uncle Fred. Well, Uncle Fred was played by an IUOC that's a part of the system. The system playing Uncle Fred is about as real as Uncle Fred ever was with all of that information. So is it really Uncle Fred? Yeah, it's really Uncle Fred, but is it really the Uncle Fred that was here? Well, no, the Uncle Fred was here doesn't exist anymore, only in a database. But um, thank you, Tom. I know. That... Upsets a lot of people, but, you know, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> no, I think it's really lovely because I like the way you say that Uncle Fred was the LCS before, and he that individuated unit of consciousness was information before he was Uncle Fred. He simply went back to being the individuated unit of consciousness that is still information. So I think it's it's really beautiful. There's one other question from Trinity, and it's, uh, is it possible to bring back physical objects from other reality frames into ours? Um. Whenever you say possible, almost everything is possible. Is it likely you're going to do that? No, not at all. One, it's against the rules, and two, it would create discontinuities, and it creates all sorts of havoc within the reality, so it's not going to happen. Doesn't mean it can't happen. You can do all kinds of things that break the rules if you do them in small numbers with a small amount, number of people who know about it because basically nobody will believe you when you say that anyway. So it creates the plausible deniability that's required, but no, you're not going to go and, you know, someplace and, you know, you're not going to travel back to ancient Egypt, put a lot of gold coins from Egyptian treasure chest into your pocket and come back rich. It isn't going to work like that. You uh, are not physical. In the process, you're not going to move physical things. For the most part, you won't even be able to interact with physical things. Your hand will go right through those those coins or anything else. But there are exceptions. Sometimes you can interact, particularly if that's going to teach you something. So, yes, it's possible. Anything is possible. You see, you could come back from a trip to ancient Egypt and if the larger consciousness system wanted to, it could create your, you know, it could create a pile of ancient Egyptian coins on your floor. All it has to do is put those in your data stream. Remember, your data stream is what defines reality. The system can put any data it wants in there. It owns the computer that's computing the virtual reality. It can do anything at once. So if it's in the system's benefit for you to have that experience, then you may get back and find a wheelbarrow in your room full of ancient Egyptian coins. Not likely, but it's possible because your reality is nothing more than information. The system's in charge of creating that information and it can do anything that it wants to for any reason that it might want to. That's just the way it is. So just about everything is possible. But I try to think of a situation where the system would want to do that, and I come up short. I can't think of any reason why the system would want to do that, but that doesn't mean there is no such you know, set of circumstances. So that's, that's the 
answer. So if you want to ask me if something's possible, the answer is almost always going to be yes. But is it likely? Not so much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I'd like to uh, hopefully get in one more question, and this is from the MBT forum. Those are usually the last questions to be asked because all of those who are present uh, have a priority. So from the MBT forum user Spry, I often encounter situations in which intellectually I know what to do, let go of ego, help others become love. But because these lessons haven't sunk down to the being level, the proverbial pudding doesn't always taste quite right. Perhaps my ego has usurped the idea. For example, I'm in a relationship with an incredibly giving, uh, caring, loving, and emotionally mature young woman. While I'm unselfish and make it about her, it works like a charm, and she more than reciprocates. Yet I felt much more excited and satisfied with previous partners and felt like the love and caring part came much more naturally to me in those situations. How should one relate to these situations? On one hand, I want to use these opportunities to let go of selfishness and ego. But on the other, I want to be true to my own personality, natural instincts, and experience. Well, there you just said it. Yes, do that. Okay. Be open, be giving, be loving, be true to yourself, be honest at all the times, be authentic. And after you've done all of that, make your best choice that you think will end up in the lowest entropy for the system. That is for everybody, including the system. And then make your choice and go on with your life. If you then look back and see that you made a mistake, change yourself so you'll make a better choice next time. If you find when you look back that it worked out perfectly, okay, pat yourself on the back and keep going. Keep working on it. So that's it. You take all those things into consideration. But yes, like you say, you'd like to be full of love and caring, whatever, but it's not quite there. So you're, you're acting uh, some until you get there. But it's growing slowly. You still have ego. You still have beliefs. You still have fears. And those things put you in a quandary. Do I want this or do I want that? If I want this, is that self-centered? If I want that, is that self-centered? And you just get totally confused and don't have any idea what you ought to do or why you're doing it or how much is ego or how much isn't. And when you twist yourself up into that kind of a knot, you're thinking about it too much. Step back from it. Let your intuition be the guide. Let your intellect provide the information and just try to come up with over some weeks your best choice. Best choice defined as lowest entropy for everyone, including the system. Then make that choice and then learn from it. Don't get wadded up. You can't make a choice because you don't know which choice is right, which is basically where this person is. He didn't say that, but that's why he's having the problem. He's not quite sure what the right choice is. Mostly you will never know what the right choice is. Most of life is too complicated to know exactly what the right choice is. But you can always do your best to pick a low entropy solution, do it, and learn from it. You see, don't get stuck not being able to make a choice because you don't know what the right answer is. Make your 
best choice. Learn from it. That's how we grow up. That's pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Not making choices because you're unsure. You know, that paralyzes the process. You can't go forward without that. Now you make all the null choices. You know, your choice is to do nothing. But by doing nothing is a choice. And it has consequences for doing nothing. So you default and those choices of doing nothing are what plays out. And usually they're not the optimal choice. As you look back on it, the do nothing choice is often not the best choice. It might be sometimes, but that's how we learn. So don't get stuck not knowing the right answer. Do your best. Make your choice. Let the chips fall where they may. Look at those chips. Learn a lesson. That's how you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Thank you, Tom. I, we have a couple of more questions from the MBT forum. They're quite long, so I'm, I promise I will include them the next time. They are recent questions, so they will definitely be included in the next presentation. I just want to say when I was running uh, through the Internet, I came across a quote from one of our astronauts, Neil Armstrong, and he said, research is creating new knowledge. And I thought, well, knowledge is essentially information. And Tom's lifelong research into physics and consciousness has concluded that our reality is information, in other words, a virtual reality. And his physics experiments are going to show this. I was wondering, Tom, if you wanted to comment on anything about your experiments and what's happening. Well, I would tend to say that research creates understanding. Things we didn't understand before, we begin to understand. Um, yeah, it creates, uh, it can create new facts. If it's good research, if it's bad research, it can create new beliefs. Um, you know, there's all sorts of research, but basically it's, it wants to create new under, new understanding. And that's a good thing. Um, we have to be careful when we do research. You know, you, you say, and, and Tom is going to have the experiments and they're going to show that all of this works. Well, yeah, Tom's going to do experiments and what they show, we won't know until they've been done. It might show how all this works or it might not. We just don't know. That's why you have to do the research. It's why you have to do the experiment. If you already knew what the answer was, you wouldn't need to do the experiment. So I get to a point in my thoughts where I say, well, here's the way I think it works, but I've made two or three assumptions here about the way the system will optimize, you know, its, its code and optimize what it's doing and meet its criteria that it has to meet. But I could be wrong. But what I need is to do an experiment to find out how is the system going to pull this off? How is it going to deal with its constraints and with its abilities? The system can do anything. Like we said, it's a virtual reality. It can do anything it wants. You know, we can have, we can have a, a little string of, of dancing hippos come through those double slits if the system wants to put them there. It can do anything. But what is it going to do? 
Dancing hippos, not so likely. You see, I say, eh, it's probably not going to do that because that's going to create huge problem about our reality. But so I, I cross that off the list. But there's multiple things it might do. And I may not understand all of the choices and and things it wants to accomplish with those choices. And I don't have any misgivings that, you know, I don't know everything about what the system might do and why it might want to do it. So I get to this point and I need to do the experiments so that I learn how the system is going to make the choices it has to make to provide the answer it provides. So <clears throat> that's the best way to think of my research anyway. Not that I'm going to prove this or that, but that I'm stuck and would like to know how it's going to turn out I've got some ideas of how I think it'll turn out, and uh, they may or may not be true. That's why I have to do the experiment. And science in general ought to be that way. If you, you know, you should have an open mind to whatever your experiment is going to come out as. You don't want to have a, an attitude, it's going to come out like this. I need it to come out like this because then your intent may bias the results to come out the way you want them. And it may not be an accurate picture of the way the world works at all. It's only an accurate picture of how you can modify physical, you know, physical things with your mind. And you don't want to do that. That would just be, um, you know, tricking yourself, so to speak. You know, we had that, what, about 20 years ago when some scientists thought they had cold fusion. And they redid the experiments and redid the experiments. They were so excited about it. And all the time they, they did them and did them. They all turned out to be positive. Yeah, we got cold fusion. So they announced to the world, you know, we got cold fusion. Other people tried to do them. It eh, didn't work. Didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. Why? Because they weren't, they weren't putting that energy into it because the system they were working with was a calimetric system with tiny little amounts of heat, lots of uncertainty. That's a system where your intent can modify what happens physically pretty easily. It's just the nature of of uh, those kinds of measurements. So we can get, no, I'm just guessing there that that's what went on. I'm not saying that was the fact, but you can do research and create the answer you want if the system is one that has a lot of uncertainty. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have any, any uh, druthers at all about how they come out. They're going to come out however they come out because I really want to learn how the world works, not trick myself into thinking it works some way because I've modified the future with my intent. So it's important for scientists to be unbiased, to be straightforward, and to just be working to the working to the science. So I'm not sure, Donna, what it is I'm going to prove or not prove, but I'm going to learn something. I'm sure of that. Absolutely, I am going to learn something, and that something is going to be important because you need to you need to go forward one step at a time. And uh, I've made some assumptions and I want to know, are they right? 